I, for one, am very glad that we were not left with only the teachings of Jesus and only the record of his life, but that we got to see a little glimpse into how the early church interpreted the teachings of Jesus that they took from the original disciples and then tried to put into practice in their own lives. It's like being a college professor. You can teach kids all the head knowledge that that you can while they're there, but the moment they walk out of college and into real life, they have to somehow put that knowledge into practice. And what many college students find out is that what they taught you in college doesn't sometimes do a whole lot of good, amen? Um, I never, I mean, they, they need to, in the pastoral ministries department of all of our Christian universities, they need to add a few classes, in my opinion, because I never had a class on resetting pressure switches in furnaces, and yet I've had to do it at every church I've served so far. I've never had a class in cleaning up throw-up in the narthex when one of the young people ate too many hot dogs and puked, but I've done that several times in my ministry as well. There, there's some things you just can't learn in a classroom and you have to learn in the practicum and that's what we've been looking at. Not just the gospel and the gospels, but how the early church took that gospel and lived it out. So far, we've been mostly in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul went around, as many of you know, starting churches and he wrote messages to those churches to encourage them, correct them, explain things to them, and we've been mostly in the letters of Paul up to this point. Today we jump into some new territory. We're gonna be reading a passage from the book of Hebrews, chapter two, verses 10 through 18. If you wanna start turning there or getting there on your device, it's gonna be on the screen, uh, but it's always good to follow along to make sure that Pastor Jeff didn't change something, amen? Some of you know I wouldn't do that. But anyway, um, the book of Hebrews is a little bit different than the books we've been reading. We're not sure who wrote Hebrews. Now, for many, many years, it was assumed that Paul probably wrote the book of Hebrews. But over the years, scholars have kind of disagreed with that and found reason to wonder who the actual author is. Now, the downside of Hebrews is that it doesn't say anywhere in the book, hey, I'm so-and-so and I'm the one who wrote this. You pretty much kind of have to guess. I mean, it's very convenient that most of Paul's letters are labeled, you know, with not only um, his signature on the inside, but their very name talks about who he wrote it to because that's the other thing we don't know about Hebrews. We don't know who wrote it, really, honestly. Honestly, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, and we also don't know who specifically it was written to. Now, the name exists because we think that it was written to a bunch of people who were Jews, who were in the Hebrew um, faith and who were probably that, ge- uh, uh, that um, genealogy as well, who were children of Abraham, so to speak. And there's several reasons that we think that. We know of the author this, that he knew his subjects, that he knew the people that he was writing to very well. It's a very familiar kind of letter, and so we know that the author of the letter knew the people that he was writing to very well. We also knew, know that he assumed they had a very thorough knowledge of history as it referred to the Jewish faith. They knew the first five books of the Bible. They understood what Israel had gone through, both you know, getting the law from Moses, coming out of Egypt, all the way up until that time because he refers to those things throughout the course of the book as if they should already know them. And so if you read the book of Hebrews, but you don't know a lot about the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, things might get a little confusing for you because the writer assumes that you knew those things, or whoever the letter was written to would know those things. It's also very evident from the way the letter is written that they were suffering persecution because of Jesus, and that many were leaving the faith because of the persecution. 
Whenever you read a letter and it says, hold on to your faith, don't desert the faith, what does that tell you? People are deserting the faith, right? You don't say don't to people unless there's a danger of them doing so. And so these are the things that we do know about it. Now, if you start reading the book of Hebrews, there's an introduction and then there's kind of four sections where the author compares Jesus to some different things that again are icons or, or kind of passionate things about the Hebrew faith. In the first couple chapters, he is compared to the angels and Torah, to the messengers of God of old, and the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Some of you don't care, some of you like history, and you do care, so that's why I'm saying it, right? How many of you like history? Raise your hand. Okay, I'm keeping it in then. We're just gonna keep going. But anyway, so there's sections to this book. We're gonna be dwelling in the first part, and uh, the author of the whole book really has two goals in mind when he's writing this book. The first goal is this, to elevate Jesus, to lift up Jesus above all other forms of religion that have gone before, especially in the Hebrew faith. In other words, he, he basically says Jesus is greater than Moses, he's greater than the Torah, he's greater than even the exodus out of Egypt, he's greater than angels, he's greater than the law. He basically is trying to help them understand that Jesus is the most complete and the best um, um, example of who God is that we have ever been getting. He is the most complete message about God in his person that we have ever received, better than anything else that has gone before. And as I said before, the second goal that the writer has is to challenge them to remain faithful to Jesus throughout the persecution that they're gonna go through. So let's dive into chapter two, um, chapter two verses 10 through 18, uh, where Jesus is essentially being kind of compared or compared with or weighed against um, the angels and the Torah. Now, some of you might be wondering, what, why angels and the Torah? It was believed because of a, a verse in Deuteronomy by the Jews that the Torah, the law code that Moses went up into the mountain to get and brought down, you know, the Ten Commandments, all that good stuff, it is believed by the Jews that when Moses went into the mountain, it was actually angels that gave him the law, that spoke to him and gave him the law code. And so the angels, the messengers of God, represent all messages that came from God before that time. And so he compares Jesus to the angels to, to let the people know that Jesus is even greater than the messengers of old and all angelic messengers of the Old Testament are, are essentially under Christ and he is greater than they are. And so let, let's kind of jump into this together and read what it says. Verse 10, God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory, and it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the one and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Listen to that, brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. He also said, I will put my trust in him. That is, I and the children God has given me. The other thing I forgot to mention about how we know it's, you know, to Hebrews is he quotes the Old Testament incessantly throughout the course of the book. And sometimes if you go look those passages up, it'll bring clarity. And sometimes when you go look those passages up, it'll confuse the living daylights out of you. So look up the passages at your own risk. Anyway, continuing on. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. 
And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he be set, or could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. All right, as we've been doing, let's jump down into this text, sit down for a few moments and see what we can learn. I love that first statement, God for whom and through whom everything was made. Now, if you're reading the whole book together, you'll find that that verse isn't a beginning point, but it's a good place to start. I mean, it all kind of flows together and we have to set boundaries somewhere. We'd be here all day. It's already quarter till, so we may already be here all day. I'm just warning you. Um, But anyway, God for whom and through whom everything was made. All of creation including you and me, everything that exists in this world that we know of, everything that exists within the boundaries of space and time is something that was created for God and through God. Interesting, right? It was created for him. In other words, he owns it. It was his idea. It's for his purposes, but it was also created for or through his purposes. Power, everything that exists in the vastness of the universe, and we're, we're just kind of tapping into the edge of what vastness there is out there, and, and it, it boggles our mind how many galaxies and stars and planets could, could be out there that we've never even laid eyes on yet. The, the universe is huge, and, and, and in the same time, when you start to boil the elements of the universe down, they're tiny. I mean, God is the one who not only planned out the universe and, and put all the stars and galaxies in their place, but he also designed the cell. Can you imagine that? A God that big could do something so intricate that he could create the very building blocks of who we are. He created all of that for himself through the power that resides in him. And that means, of course, that he created us. I know who made you. And it wasn't just your mom and dad. God made you. And he made you for a purpose. God created us for a purpose. We were made for him through his power. Now listen, I am all for debates about Genesis, right? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And this day and that day and the evening and the morning and all that good stuff. I love to read Genesis. I think it's, it's an awesome reading. But you know what? I think as Christians, we spend too much time debating Genesis with people when we ought to be pointing them to this verse. Because this verse captures the reason Genesis is in the Bible. The reason the creation story is in scripture is not particularly to tell us how God did it. It's to tell us he did it and we were a part of it and he created us in his image for his pleasure. We have a purpose. We have a purpose. You have a purpose. Some of you are like, yeah, no, I'm I'm fine sitting on the couch watching Netflix. It's okay. I have a purpose, yes. Do everything my wife tells me. That's my purpose, right? No, 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 no. Your purpose is far greater than that. Listen, God created us for him 
and by him. We were created for him. Um, Instead of fighting about Genesis, we need to fight for this statement because this statement defines what's really important. It isn't so much important how God created. What's important is that he created man in his image for his purpose and for himself. We were created for someone and that someone knows better than you do how to get the best out of your life. You wanna live the best life you could ever live? Dieting ain't gonna cut it. New Year's resolutions are not gonna cut it. Eating healthy, good thing to do, not gonna cut it. You can learn everything the library has to offer in their self-help section and still not live your very best life. The only thing that will allow us to live our best life is to submit to the creator, the one who made us for him, and to follow the plan that he has for us. Do you remember God created everything that exists, even the cells, all of the animals. He wove everything together. The the scriptures tell us that we were woven together in our mother's womb by the creator. That God has a plan for your life once you're born, And, and wouldn't it be wise of us to follow his plan instead of our plan? And friends, that begins when we walk with him, when we establish a relationship with him through Jesus and his death on the cross of Calvary. And once we begin to walk with God, he will show us how to live our best life. Listen, some of you are trying way too hard to be successful in life. It's as simple as this, follow Jesus. You follow Jesus and God will help you find the life that you were created for. Not just the one you're trying to get, the one you were created for. Um, Everything else will fall short. I know this for a fact. My daughter's getting married in like three weeks. You know what that means? I've been trying to lose weight for a month. (laughs) One pound gone, two pounds come back. I don't know if it's just 50s or what, but it's impossible. Maybe it's because I don't eat right. You think that might be it? It's because I'm in the church of God and you people feed me every time we get together. Listen, no matter how hard you try on your own, you will never find the purpose you were created for without the creator. You were created for him through his power. Okay, one sentence, that took up 10 minutes. Crud, we gotta move. All right, so going forward, um, God chose to bring many children into glory. That's one of his next statements. And by saying he brought them into glory, he's talking about bringing them into salvation, having them accept the gift that Jesus gave us through the cross of Calvary. He chose to bring them in. He chose. It was a deliberate act of his will. He could have left us in our sin. He could have left us separated from him, but he chose to bring us into his glory. Jesus leads us there. Jesus is the one who brings us there, and the Bible says that he did that through his suffering. Only because he suffered is he the perfect leader fit to bring us into our salvation. Because of what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary, because he suffered, he became the suffering servant. And because he suffered, now we can follow him into the glory that God has for us. And then he turns it around and he says these words, so now, I love that that word because it, it represents that this is a result of what just came before. So now, we and Jesus have the same father. Let me go back to what I said earlier. Jesus is our brother. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, I can tell. You people are deadbeats today, I'm just saying. No, Jesus is our sibling. 
We are part of the family of God. The scripture says over and over again that God is our father, that Jesus and us, we have the same father. We have been brought into the family. We are not just employees that God brought on to communicate the message of the gospel to the whole world. And yet that's sometimes how I feel like the church makes us feel. And that's our fault. We're not just here to get a job done. We're here to invest. We're part of the family. You know, when I go to help somebody with a project, it matters who I'm helping, right? It matters. If I get called and somebody I barely know says, can you come help me move? I'm gonna show up with the truck, I'm gonna give them two hours and there better be pizza and pop. (laughs) Maybe that's why I don't lose weight, I don't know, right? But if one of my kids is moving, if one of my kids is moving, I will be there from the moment they start till the moment the last piece of furniture is put back together. Why? Because they're family. Why is it so special to be a part of a a church like this? Because we're family. And that's why when Mary needed us over at Jim Sparks' house, some of you showed up in spades and didn't quit until the job was done. And his whole house got cleaned out. It was a sad, horrible, tragic job. Not just because of the mice but because, you know, Jim Sparks was such a beloved person in this community, and we all loved him, and we had to just throw a lot of his stuff away because there wasn't anything to do with it, and it was sad, but yet at the same time happy because we know where Jim Sparks is, right? He's in heaven waiting for us to get there. That'll be like the family reunion without the weird cousins. It's gonna be awesome. Listen, He'll be there, but this family got together and cleaned out his house, and Mary can't, every time I see Mary, I think she's getting senile, she says, I just can't believe how quickly everybody got that job done. If I'd have had to do that myself, I never would have, she said that like eight times to me. You know why? Because it's family, and she understands that she's a part of this family. In fact, she might be the, the mom. She might be the matriarch of this family. I'm not sure. Amen. Yeah. But listen, that's what family does, and we are brothers with Christ. Not just with each other, but with Christ. That is so exciting. Friends, we have the same Father. Now, Jesus has other titles that we know him by, certainly, and we need to respect them. He is our Savior. He's our Lord. He's our, our King of kings and our Lord of lords, our Messiah. And we need to give him the proper respect that he is due. But that same God, that glorious God that came and became human flesh, that is, you know, that the Bible says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord of everything. That same God. God is willing to say to us, you are my brothers. You're my brothers. The glory of God being shown by Jesus taking on a weak form and living a weak life. He is our brother. Verse 14, Jesus had to become like us to allow us to enter into this kingdom in in order for us to find the glory of God. We are flesh and blood, it says, so he had to become flesh and blood. Only as a human could he die, and only by dying could he overcome the, the grip that the devil had on death. But because he died, we are all now free. Friends, I would extrapolate more, but that seems pretty clear to me. Verse 16, he says this weird thing about Jesus not coming to help angels. To be perfectly honest, I have no idea where that came from. I think he just wants to make it very clear that Jesus' whole reason for coming was for you and I. It's for humanity. Now, he says he came for the Hebrews, but let's keep in mind who this is written to, right? And that means Jesus came for all of us. Jesus came for us. He had to be made in every respect like us. 
his brothers and sisters in order for his death to mean what it needed to mean. He became the high priest and he also at the same time was the sacrifice for our sins. And finally, let's get to verse 18 because I'm about out of time and there's some stuff I have to say about this verse because it's awesome. Verse 18 says this, since he humbled himself, um, he has, I I didn't type it right. I'll read it from the original. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Anybody here being tested? Any of you, any, anybody here really tired of being tested? <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly. I, okay, I don't know what that is, but I agree. Yeah. Testing is not fun, is it? Trials are not fun, are they? But Jesus was tested in every way like we are, and because he has gone through the suffering and the testing, he can understand what we're going through. It's hard to help somebody with something that you don't understand yourself, am I right? For example, when my kids got old enough to start bringing home math homework, did you know that math is no longer just numbers? There's all kinds of words in there now. Words like estimate. I used to get points taken off for estimating, amen? (laughs) I'd say to the teacher, I was close! And she'd say, no. Listen, I couldn't help my children with their math because I didn't understand it, because I hadn't experienced it. It's, it's in the big and the little as well. Listen, I, I have been in ministry for over 20, I know, 20 some years. And there have been times repeatedly I have been unable to help people with addictions to alcohol and drugs. You know why? Because I've never been addicted to alcohol or drugs. I've seen the effects from the outside looking in. I've had people in my family who have struggled with alcoholism. I've seen what it does to other people, but that makes me less able to help them because I'm holding a grudge. Yeah, I know what alcohol did to me through people in my family that were alcoholics. That doesn't help me help them. I can't really effectively help. I can pray I can point them in the right direction. I can lead them to some of you who maybe have had that experience and and can help them as a result. And if you've had that experience, let me tell you, you are needed to help people. But listen, I can't do what others can do because I've never experienced it. I, I, I did a lot of funerals before I was 25 years old, 26 years old, whatever the age was. But listen, my, I had never lost anybody close to me until I was in my mid-20s. Never lost a person who was close to me. In, in my mid-20s, my grandmother died, the one that I grew up a quarter of a mile up the street from. How many of you know that growing up a quarter of a mile away from grandma's house is the best thing ever, right? Yeah, M- mom, dad, get ornery, you just ride your bike to grandma's house. She has food waiting all the time. Cookies on the countertop every time you go. That grandma passed away. And it, it, it was hard and it destroyed me. And let me tell you something. After that experience, the way that I handled grieving families and funerals changed remarkably because I'd been through it, right? 
There's a lot of things in my ministry that, that I may have been ineffective in the early times because I hadn't been through it. It's hard to help somebody with something if you haven't been through it yourself. But I don't think God wants us to go out looking to have some of these bad experiences just so we can help people. But by all means, we should leverage people that we know that have been through these experiences and encourage them to tell their stories because your story could help somebody. Do you get that? And some of you out here, I know you've been through things that I haven't been through and and you need to minister to people who are going through similar problems. But you know what? We can't do that unless we share those experiences with each other and talk to each other about them. Unless we know what the problem is, we can't bring the solution. And, And that means we gotta be what God intended for us to be, the family. And be willing to share our, our concerns and our struggles. And I'm thankful for people who have been, thing, been through things that I haven't been through. And I gotta tell you, I would never choose to go through addiction just so I could help somebody. But that is exactly what Jesus did for us. In heaven, he was not contained in a physical body. He was not contained by time. He was everywhere, all the time, and all-powerful. Most of us would give up anything to be in that position, amen? Jesus gave that up (laughs) to be limited in his existence in a human body. And he wasn't born in a palace, so he'd be wealthy his whole life, and people would bow down and worship him. Where was he born? You know the story. In a cow's plate, right? a manger in a stable. I'm sure it smelled bad. And he was born to parents who didn't have much, but they raised him. He was tested and tempted and tried like we were. Jesus experienced everything that we experienced. You know, it says his testing uh, and his suffering. Now, obviously his suffering was on the cross, but he also suffered just by coming to this earth because he took on human form. We know all about his suffering and we talk about that, but the temptation of Jesus is a big one too. We, we think Jesus went into the wilderness. Some of you have heard the story of Jesus going into the wilderness, the devil tempted him and then he came back and we're like, oh yeah, Jesus got that one all the way, checked it off the list. I got news for you. Jesus was tempted in every way like we are, which means he was tempted every day of his life and still didn't do anything wrong. How do we know that? We know that because in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he was arrested, he got on his knees and said, God, I don't want to. he, He could see what was coming. He knew what was gonna happen. He knew he would be arrested. He knew he would be tried in a kangaroo court. He knew he would go to the cross and die and he didn't wanna do it. He said, God, if there's any way you can let this cup pass from me, please, please do it. And the Bible says he sweat blood. I don't know about you, but I've never been grieved enough to sweat blood. That's how much he didn't want to go through with it. He was tempted just like we were, and yet without sin. Because he went through suffering, and he went through testing, he can help us when we go through our testing. He showed us God's glory through his humility. You get that? That's kind of a dichotomy, isn't it? He showed us the glory of God by being the humble servant. 
He led us into God's glory according to this text, but he did it by suffering. You know what? We think, or at least sometimes us pastors maybe think, that when we start doing it right, that our you know, glory and our influence is going to increase and people are going to come into the kingdom because of how good we are at our jobs. But I've got news for you. According to what this says, I think the most effective means of leading people to Jesus is through our suffering and our failure and our testing. How about that? So I'm going to preach bad sermons from now on. Some of you are like, you started that years ago. It isn't our successes that lead people to Jesus. It's our willingness to come back from failure that leads people to Jesus. It's how they see us come through those times of testing that leads them to Jesus. It's seeing us fail and then be honest enough to say, yeah, I failed. I didn't do that right. I should have done better. And by God's grace, next time I will. That's what leads people to Jesus. Jesus led us because of his suffering, because of his imperfection, not because of his perfection. And by that right, if that's the key to it, we should be better at bringing people into God's kingdom than Jesus was. Amen? Because we're, <laughs> we're not anywhere near as good as he was. Our suffering is what leads people to Christ. We need to follow Jesus' example and show others the way to God's glory through our own humility, through our own failure, through our own earthiness. Now again, I'm not telling you to go out and do your worst possible job in every way. We should still strive to do everything we can to, to communicate properly and all of those things. We want, we want to do well what we do as a church. But listen, honestly, it's gonna be some of the times of failure when we're not expecting to even have anybody looking at us that we're gonna be the best possible witness for Christ. So mind those times when you're failing and pay attention to how you respond because somebody just might be watching and God might be trying to lead them into his glory through your humility. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I come before you today and um, Lord, we, we confess our weakness. As the song said earlier, we come to you broken, we come to you as we are. And God, I believe that's how you planned it. That's how your plan for this world is supposed to work, that, that we do our very best and yet in our weakness, you become strong. In our failure, people see how we respond and they make decisions one way or the other about whether they want to have what we have or whether they want nothing to do with our faith. I pray that you would help us in our times of greatest humility to follow you best. In the times when we do the wrong thing, in the times when we make mistakes, in the times when we lose our temper or aren't good witnesses for you that people would see us repent, that they would see us walk away from failure in the direction of you. And God, we just pray that as the people the writer of Hebrews is writing to, that we would hold fast to our faith even though most of us aren't suffering persecution. Lord, our, our greatest enemy today is simply apathy. And I pray that you would help these people, those who are hearing my voice this morning, to hold fast to their faith, to, to hang on to their faith throughout all the trials of life, through, through apathy, through... through um, all of the, the um, 
indulgence that we have as Americans through all the, the good things that we experience because, God, those are an even greater danger to us at times than our failure. But whatever we experience, God, I pray that you would keep us faithful and allow us to show others your glory through our humility. Because Jesus went through it, we can do it. In Jesus' name, amen.